I am. I am. It's also good and even and, and you know, relatively balanced, even though, the, well, I'm not and, and you're not really, but these look pretty balanced to me. <laughs> Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing in your beautiful new home? David, I, I feel like I am making it my own now. It, uh, you know, everyone who's been through this knows there are multiple levels of adjustment. You know, learning the sounds of the house. We've had some really heavy winds over the last three days that calmed down now. So hearing how that thing sounds, my uh, freezer makes a very peculiar sound that sounds exactly like a door knock, which at three o'clock in the morning is a little bit sort of weird, but I'm cool with that now. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I went to sleep the other night exhausted because I'm still, you know, kind of working overtime. And uh, I heard the sound. I thought, my God, don't tell me. Is that a rat in the wall right over my bed or behind my bed? That can't be. And so out into the, the thick of the night and the wind, I went with my bike lamp on and my clippers. And I took action against what is really quite a beautiful, but uh, recalcitrant, if not extremely difficult, date palm. Like a woman that is really not easy to get along with. And I pruned some of the branches back because I thought, well, maybe they're brushing against the house. They obviously were brushing against the house, but maybe that's the sound. Then, so I, I did that. I just, you know, smashing the, you know, I just, you know, killing myself. And of course, I hadn't put on my gloves because it was three o'clock in the morning. Uh, and then I went back in, in the bedroom and, and waited and listened, you know, and there's mm -hmm. nothing like someone listening for what they think is a rat in the wall. If you've ever read the H.P. Lovecraft or Rats in the Wall, you'll know what I'm talking about. Well, it went beautifully quiet. And I thought, this is too good to be true. Really, was it just the palm fronds? Have I really solved the problem? So I stayed awake for another hour because I didn't believe that I'd actually done it. And it, then I finally fell asleep and I haven't heard the sound since. So I'm doing more work on that palm tree, which is quite lovely, but uh, is a home for nesting uh, morning doves and quail. They are going at it like rabbits. They are abs, it's a pornography, it's, it's nature pornography in the tree outside my bedroom. It is incredible, but at least I know there are no rodents uh, in my wall, and I wish the coyotes good fortune on eating them. Uh, they've got a lot to eat. The coyotes are a great nick around here. They look really fluffy and like, I'm a designer coyote because I've got bunnies and rats to eat in abundance. And then up, yeah. up on the yeah. mountain, up on the mountain, she lives this beautiful mountain lion who is just talk about fluffy and no one's going to shoot her. I think she's too smart, but she's got a lot to eat. So the, in, 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 in summation, uh, it has been an enormous challenge at this time of year with cold, bitter cold coming 
up off the lake, uh, high winds, but I think it's okay. I'm winding up my moving in scenario, and I think you're about to get into the thro- the vortex with your family. I wish you luck. Yeah, we got everything packed up here. The movers show up on Tuesday. We uh, hired a moving company to do this work because I moved furniture for about three years in my mid-20s. So I've always taken it upon myself throughout our moves to sort of lift everything and do everything. And I decided this time not to do that. So everything is packed up. I'm alarmed and amazed at how much crap I have not just how many books I have that I don't want, which we talked about last episode, but just the stuff that accumulates over time. I, you know, it's going down memory lane in the worst possible way. <laughs> why, why do I still have you know this paint bucket? I already painted the room. What am I going to use the last eighth of paint that's in this paint bucket? Probably not. I got a ladder. Okay, that makes sense, but. This old paint roller doesn't make any sense. So it's, you know, it's wild stuff. Before we get into the meat of the show, because we have some good stuff to talk about today. First of all, I wanted to announce the two words that I used last time, which were ragamuffin and incinerate. If you caught those, good on you. As you guys know, Chris gives me five words before the show starts, of which I am to pick two to smoothly finesse them into our conversation. That is, of course, in addition to an imaginative challenge that Chris gives me. And this one is on the spot. This one Chris does not give me before the show. He gives it to me live as as you're hearing it, I guess, even though the templexity of that is a bit strange. Oh, I like so that, that word. Templexity is a beautiful word. Well done. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, and with these imaginative challenges, I, I'm drawing on uh, you know a lifetime of, of teaching experience uh, with students of various ages and various orientations around the world. But I'm also inventing things. Uh, I'm thinking of, of things that, that appeal to me, uh, trying to approach thought and intellectual exercise from a gaming point of view, you know, um, fun games those things are really important to the learning mechanisms and they're very important to our flexibility of mind. I'm very, very conscious of how uh, younger and younger and younger people are losing flexibility of mind. You can see flexibility lost in terms of physicality uh, and even some very fit people I know. If you, if you see them try to get down on their hands and knees and, and scrub something or move something, nah, it's not so good. And, and they might need a lot more time in the morning kind of stretching out and yoga, you know, dog yoga, if nothing else. So this, these are exercises that try to come in from different dimensions. That's one of my core ideas. I use that in the textbook on creative writing and the imagination with an emphasis on the imagination, which is coming out on March 31st. I'm very excited, but I can't wait. I just, it's like waiting for a delivery of something. You just want, you know, your books uh, and you want it to be out in the world so people can read it and, and, and use it in classrooms and in their own practice. But the, the, the core idea is very, very simple. It's, it's using dimensionality. It's rather like 
very simply, you know, easing the strain on your eyes by looking around, by adjusting to different distances. You know, this is where we start to feel aging very acutely. You think, oh, I need reading glasses, then I need distance glasses, and you know, but we need to be moving our our eyes, moving our minds, and occasionally, of course, getting up off the couch or our you know computer chairs and offices, and you know, flexibility, strength, and balance. Those physical characteristics carry over into intellectual, magical, spiritual, and psychological levels. So this challenge today, David, is, is focusing on something that we've talked a lot about, uh, the notion of community. And I want to look at here the distinction between a community and a society. For many people, those terms are interchangeable. I would suggest that for you and me, they're not. Uh, I, I think that there is a distinct difference between a community and a society. And we need, as Gilbert Ryle said, to always sharpen our sense of distinctions and definition, particularly when it comes to category differences. Is there a difference between community versus society? I suggest there is. So what I want you to do is develop your own all-purpose boilerplate definition of the difference between community versus a society. But I want you to think of it as a supporting aspect here. Mm -hmm. Two ways of thinking of it. One positive, one potentially negative. Let me give you two examples as a way of helping form and shape your thinking. I would say that in a community there is less danger of falling off a ladder in your residence. Okay? And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. I think that's a very practical, neighborly good thing. I once in my house in Australia watched my dingo dog knock over my ladder so that even when I was a little bit springier, I was looking at, huh, that's kind of a good tuck and roll even for a skydiver. I'm not sure I really, I, that's kind of like a base jump, you know? Mm -hmm. And it was a question of hollering for someone to come and, and they did. This, the downside, though, and I think this is an interesting definition or interesting sort of way of thinking of, of a community, it's very hard to keep secrets. Mm -hmm. Very hard to keep secrets. Think about where those, where, you know, social systems where that applies. I would suggest any place of, of incarceration like prison. I was just schools, particularly, uh, well, like junior high. Um, I would suggest the military. Uh, maybe that's one of the core uh, defining elements of a community. It's very hard to keep secrets. So a good point and a bad point. You're, you're safer being up on a ladder in a community as opposed to a society. Uh, the downside is it's harder to keep secrets. But what we'll want to hear from you is your own boilerplate definition of how a community diverges from a society. 
on any level from numbers to, to scale of magnitude to perhaps deeper psychological things. But we want you to come back with, in support of your definition, a good thing and potentially a negative thing for the individual, from an individual's perspective. Rights and responsibilities. Okay? Is that clear? Right. It is clear. Yes. Okay, good. Got it. All right. Difference. Okay. Well, speaking of different words and their etymologies, I wanted to start off today because I was <clears throat> behind a truck today. We were moving some boxes from the old place to the new place, and I was parked at a stoplight behind a Ford F-150, and the bumper sticker on it said CrossFit Exile. I don't know what that means. I do. I don't know if they were kick, kicked out of CrossFit. Uh, I don't know if Exile is a brand of CrossFit. What does it What does it mean to you, Chris? Uh, well, I would have said that, that yeah, that they've been in CrossFit and they've rejected the uh, kind of the uh, I don't know a little bit of the I don't mean religious, but I mean. Uh, evangelical aspect of CrossFit. That would be my interpretation yes. that they're breaking they're breaking with the flock. They're, they don't want to fly in formation with the CrossFit idea. Right. So then I started thinking of other words like exile because I thought to myself, exile is a lovely word. I like the way that that sounds. I like the way that dissident sounds. But I also like the way pariah sounds. <laughs> I think that's a very lovely word and i did a little digging to see where pariah comes from and it is in fact i believe a tamil word mm. yes it's a it's a tamil word from southern india from uh, parayan uh which were drummers who would beat on these big things called parai so a parai is a large festival drum and they were considered unclean and their uncleanliness and their ability to if I had to guess, party harder than everybody else led to them being shunned from society. And then it came to mean any person who's been shunned as unclean. But I loved that idea of the large festival drum. It brings to mind the idea of the, the jester or the trickster, somebody who really loves to party and mess with people who most of the time is considered in a low cast, but they're, they also know how to have fun. This sort of, this ties into, and I won't get too into it so that I don't sort of cross my wires with my in, imaginative challenge, but it does make me think of how in communities and societies we both love and love to hate, you know, the pariah. But there's a, there's a positive connotation to that word for me that I think is really interesting. Oh, I think there definitely is. I think that's very interesting. It, uh, I mean, uh, my mind, uh, you know, at my age jumps to Keith Moon, you know, uh, the, the mm -hmm. drummer for the, for the Who. Blowing up his drum set. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we have, it's interesting that, you know, all of Africa is really, first of all, driven by the drum in some form, some sort of percussion. Secondarily, in, in, in Southern and Eastern Africa, more uh, vocal harmonies come in. But, I mean, when you, when you think of West African music, you think entirely of the drum, I would suggest, and in many other parts of the world. And yet, there is a kind of... Um, 
Well, drums spur on deep emotions, primal emotions. They, they spur on a certain kind of dance and a certain kind of vocal uh, performance. And some of those things can lead people into behaviors that are, you know, potentially, um, well, they challenge the nature of, of uh, what is social, what is community-based. They're, they're liberating of, of the individual. Sometimes to, you know, think of the Vudan or, you know, voodoo ceremonies. I mean, that's just like total chaos and people, you know, really going uh, nuts. Or, you know, the great... Uh, from Egypt through Greece and, and the Roman ceremonies of mystery rites, of, of release, of powerful, powerful uh, psychology depths and emotional behaviors through percussion and, and certainly, well, primarily through per percussion, other instruments, shrieking horns and reeds, vocal craziness, but all driven by the drums. So I think that's a really interesting mm -hmm. idea that that uh, and maybe that's another that's a great way to introduce the, the the whole topic of dissonance of our time, is that we're a little bit unsure, uh, to say the least, about the sacred clowns, the the drumming pariahs, the the mystical figures making trouble, when we feel like we have so much trouble already, maybe we want kind of a middle of the road, you know singer just kind of you know and everything in four four time and you know c major you know maybe that's where we've gotten mm. to um meanwhile the pariahs are going ah, let's try seven four time let's go do this and polyrhythmic craziness you know right right i think that so we can get yeah we can get into our our dissonance aspect right now and i because i think that there is a definite I don't even know where to start with this. This it's and it's not for lack of things to talk about. It's because that makes me think of so much stuff right now. I feel like we currently live in an age of, you know, stigmatizing and and creating pariahs in our social discourse to a level that I had never seen before about oh, I don't know, 2012, 2016, something like that. Um but I do think that there is a cast of people that is forming right now uh, that I would consider myself a part of, and a lot of people who I respect as well would also be a part of that, that are creating their own intellectual and social island uh, that communicates only ever so often with the rest of the people. It really is a kind of separateness outside the city gates. I'm thinking in particular of some things that I've seen on social media from some of my more liberal-minded friends who I know for a fact are good people who have their hearts in the right place, but occasionally I will see some things that these people say that just appears to me to be so divorced from anything resembling reality. It's a tricky word. Reality is a tricky word. But in the sense that I'm using it, it's it's lived experience. It's being able to walk outside your door and, and tell everybody you know what you see. It just seems so uh, lacking in basic common sense um, generosity towards the other uh, that I I just don't see. So my, my point is is that it does feel as though 
there is, to use Curtis Yarvin's term, a cathedral, right? A cathedral city, like the Vatican City. And then it seems like outside those walls, there are many dumpster fires that are going with the unwashed, such as myself. Maybe you consider yourself one of these two. And we're banging drums and banging other things, right? I mean... <clears throat> It's a good time. <laughs> David, you're just killing me here. I've got to hear some specifics of what is driving you crazy about your liberal friends. Lay it on us. Come on. Well, uh, I think the thing that got me the most was uh, Zelensky, the <laughs> president of... Is it president or prime minister of Ukraine? It's president, right? They have a yeah. president. Um done up in photoshop to resemble captain america but he's <coughs> captain ukraine um there is there were a lot of people who were saying things like if you don't like expensive gas why did you pay for an eighty thousand dollar truck because i guess they think that all rednecks have big f350s that they're driving around or hummers oh, these big gas that's that's oh, another one that's driving me man. nuts um okay I'll give you one more example i'll give you one more example i love which that is, one man I yeah that. that's which is the um the idea that conspiracy theorists and this was retweeted by again somebody who i know whose heart's in the right place they believe the things that they believe because it makes them feel smarter than everybody else, which goes completely against what most conspiracy theorists who I know, and I guarantee I know more of them than the person who retweeted this, who are usually surprisingly humble about what they do and don't know. Kind of the, you do have your paranoids who are like, you don't understand, man. You don't understand the play. You, you, you're just not listening. You're not paying attention. And those voices get amplified because they're obnoxious. But the majority of conspiracy theorists who I listen to are like, man, I don't know. But something's weird. This doesn't add up. They, they construct their their intellectual mind palaces through a process of negation. So they're not saying, here's what's going on. They're, they're saying, look at this and tell me if you think that this is weird or not. Again, not a 100%, but that that is my lived experience. And it's just completely separate from these people who seem to think that conspiracy theorists are sitting there smug, somehow happy about the fact that, <laughs> that you know, that uh, COVID uh, is, you know, maybe not what it was first cracked up to be, or that 9-11 was an inside job. People get driven insane by these things. It's not necessarily always the most fun thing in the world to believe that from the top to the bottom, there are bad actors conspiring to hoard wealth for themselves and screw over the bottom 99.9%. That's not a fun way to look at things. And it certainly doesn't make me feel either smart or holier than thou. It's just the most valid picture that I have of reality based on experience. Well, you know, there's no need to, to even mention the idea of conspiracies when you look at some basic truths. Gasoline, where I live, is over $5 a gallon. Inflation 
That's the highest it's ever been in my lifetime, I believe. Inflation is the highest it's ever been in my lifetime. Interest rates are set to crank up in response to that. America's international reputation is the worst it's ever been, including during the Vietnam era. Uh, crime in major cities, the 25 major cities in America, are all experiencing enormous crime spikes. We've got a homelessness problem that remains out of control. With out the, of control. The, the, the intermingled factors of uh, criminality, mental health, poverty, and drug abuse. Uh, we have a complete failure of a national system. And it's starting to become obvious where the fingers are going to be pointed. And I think in many instances, rightly so. I don't always think this is true. Uh, of course not. But I think that there are some real undisputed failures of leadership that are not about anything to do with conspiracies or where COVID came from or who's making money or big pharma or any of this. It's a failure at the gas pumps. It's a failure at the 7-Eleven level. It's a failure at the level of a woman debating about whether or not she can even buy diapers. It's a failure of a giant abandonment of, of the, any kind of notion of the middle class in America. While the media continues to prop up a commercial uh, capitalist frame of shop more, you know, go online, buy this, buy that. Well, with what? With what? I, I saw a billboard today driving back from the new house to the old house, an enormous billboard in downtown Oklahoma City for Rolex watches. And I thought, who is that for? Who the <laughs> who is buying a Rolex right now? Well, I'd like to know their name. Uh, I understand why they won't. I I would love them. I I I I have I fetishize uh, men's wristwatches. I think they're beautiful. I think they're sort of the hub of both design and craftsmanship and indeed total artistry. But I think that we're and I think the same. You know, I know people feel the same way about certain kinds of models of cars. Um, you know, the problem is, is that the bottom has fallen out. You notice they say that they never say the top is fallen off of the wedding cake. I, that's where the mm -hmm. that's where the damage is to wedding cakes and certain structures. You know, they the the terrorists didn't hit the bottom of you know the World Trade Towers. You know, it. But when the bottom falls out. That is the house of cards. That is the destruction of the system. And I think we're looking at that on, on multiple levels right now, both in very tangible financial terms. And, and I mean, I don't know. Do you re uh, you're probably too young to remember, like, really a gas crisis of not, you know, having gas at the tank. I mean, it makes the toilet paper crisis of the, co of the early COVID thing look polite, you know? Yeah, no, the first time I noticed gas getting expensive was in 2008 when I got my driver's license. That would have been 2003. Gas was $1.78. For some reason, I remember that exactly to the day. The first tank I ever filled up, it was $1.78. And funny enough, because I was 16 years old, I thought, man, gas is expensive. Imagine now, 
costs you five dollars for a gallon of gas i used to be able to scrounge in the couch cushions for quarters yeah me too to get a half get a half a gallon of gas to go down to the coffee shop slash punk bar it was a cool spot me too and hang out with my friends and drink beer under the table because nobody would say anything me too um, see that's interesting you and i despite the age difference there are so many generational resonances that still apply they will not apply uh, to you know, even people half your age, but certainly not to your son's age. Uh, but but there those there is a structure, there is a grammar to culture and society that that is still consistent between your age and mine, and that is completely dissolving. So in the midst of gasoline prices surging, people really feeling stress at the immediate family roof line level. Uh, I mean, I, I, I met a guy today who, you know, he said, look, you know, he said, I, I actually don't own a gun. And, uh, but this is an open carry state. Uh, and if gasoline hits $7 a gallon, uh, I, I'm, I'm just staying at home. And I thought, wow, okay. You know, he seemed like a really kind of good dude. He's a, he's a roofer. You know, he, you yeah, know, he, right. he, he works for a living. He, you know, he's proud to sort of be raising two kids, not 10, you know, he's, he's just doing, you know, what he was, you know, raised to do, uh, not well educated, but not stupid by any means. But I think he had the right idea. I think if gasoline jumps exponentially, and this is an idea, this is one of the tools we're going to get to, uh, later in the show, um, if if it continues to exponentially leap up, uh, we're going to see violence, and it's we're not, no one's going to be waiting around to the midterm elections to to you know put forward their vote. You know, it's not going to be on that rational level. It's like nope, <laughs> it's going to be insane, and maybe well again, go ahead. Sorry. Well, just to tie back to what you're thinking about in terms of conspiracies, I mean. Where the conspiracy theory idea gets in there for me is that, well, maybe that's what's behind this problem. But it's not a conspiracy theory. I don't know where Rachel Maddow buys her gas or any of those, you know, people, but it's pretty democratic. I, 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 I went, I drove around burning some gas to check out the prices just to make sure I knew what I was talking about. And everywhere is four ninety nine to five twenty one regular, eighty seven on the pump in my accessible jurisdiction, and I can never I, I just don't remember ever paying that price, and I certainly don't ever remember the inflation levels, and I'm well certainly I mean no one can since two thousand eight minimum, but I don't think ever, and. We're, we're heading for uh, some very dire street-level, shop-level times, and that's not a conspiracy. The, the conspiracy lies behind that, you know, if there is one. But I don't think there's any question about you have to be You have to have your head up your butt not to notice the pain people are feeling, that you're feeling, I'm feeling. <laughs> 
You do. Yeah, you absolutely do. When you see someone like Stephen Colbert on his late night show saying, you know, paying a little bit, if paying a little bit more for gas means sticking it to Putin, he said, I consider it my patriotic duty. Well, sir, you are worth $75 million. So it doesn't make a difference to you, you know, whether gas is five or $10. But here's the thing what you're talking about, people. Like your like your roofer neighbor who you were talking to. Uh, well, is he your neighbor or was he just somebody? He was just somebody at the at, at the pumps. Just you know? somebody at the tank. Yeah. yeah. So when you talk to those people, and a lot of those people are my friends as well, hardworking people who have to use their vehicle to get from job to job because that's how they make money with their hands at different locations. It really does start to add up when you're spending the equivalent of a plane ticket to Korea every month to fill up your tank so that you can do your job i mean it's not it's not feasible and that's what i kind of want to express today is this idea that you know we we we're hooked up to these i call them now i call my phone a cortisol iv drip (laughs) because if you look at the neuroscience of what they've done with phones it's to keep you stressed out and angry all the time so you have people who are hooked up to their phones and you're not, you cannot be on something like Twitter, I think, and at the same time be a rational thinking human being who understands the world around you. It's just not possible. So what you end up with on Twitter on all sides of the political spectrum are creatures who do not talk to strangers at gas pumps and get a feel for what an actual person has to say about what gas prices are doing to their livelihood. And I would just encourage people going off of your um, your tool last time about paying compliments to people. I mean, literally just talking to people would be a step in the right direction because you are able to take the temperature of things. I was talking to some of the, the patrons in our, in our meetup last Thursday about uh, some of the pandemic issues right and a point that we all got to was that you know we would just go outside of our house and go look around at the way that life was sort of going on quite normally and that's how we would take the temperature of what was going on with the pandemic we didn't rely on the news or social media to tell us what was going on we went to walmart right are people dropping dead in walmart or is blood coming out of their eyes no well then we're probably you know we're probably okay. Not to say again, you know, because I don't want to re-litigate that whole thing about you know what COVID was or anything like that. But there's there's a power to being able to look at the narrative around you that is naturally created by reality itself and internalize that based on what you see and what you have experienced in your life, and it's called common sense which is something that blue-collar workers have in spades and college-educated, uh, you know, horned-rimmed glass-wearing writers for the New York Times just do not have a grasp on. Well, I have to chime in on that and, and amplify it, uh, you know, uh, put out the big bullhorn to, to broadcast that, that notion further. I, I want to pick up on the... Uh, the Stephen Colbert uh, reference, because I think he's kind of a hinge point in what you've just said. Uh, I, I was a great fan of his, as many liberal intellectual uh, yeah. people were, when he was in character, uh, working with Jon Stewart and was kind of a, you know, a, 
a sort of a featured cameo sort of act. I, I thought he was enormously funny and very insightful and obviously very intelligent. Uh, I, I think he is the biggest failure of in the media terms that I can think of. And I, 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 when I see him now, when I hear him now, my sense of revulsion, dismay, and anger knows no bounds. I think he... Same. I think he deserves his own circle of hell for what has become of his mind, his uh, credibility, and his level of critical thinking. I, I think he is now the personification of the soft, uh, white underbelly of super liberal, let's excuse everything, leftism, Democrat behavior that I, I have... Uh, said goodbye to forever and i th i think he is the way of 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 me saying it i i find his physical presence uh now and i i enjoyed that character he created so much and i certainly have respect for his intellect but i think he's a complete uh psychological and moral failure uh in in the media and i i hope that he gets taken off the air sooner rather than later but he's he's the whole foods uh version of uh what was a good idea that has you know really betrayed a lot of people of good common sense who actually work very hard and get under houses and tie things down and and clean drains and wipe butts and do the work you know and there, there are people in ER rooms all over America. I, I went to three of them checking out the COVID sort of things. And I, I used to work in an ER. And I, I like talking with those people. And, you know, they're, they're dealing with, they're mopping up after the murders and the thoracic wounds. You ever smell a thoracic gunshot wound? Even fresh, it's not, you know, it's not pretty. And you can have your mask on and all this stuff. And you can still mm -hmm. smell it. Because it's it's the leaky shit. It's the end of someone's. They're on the edge. They're between the worlds, and those people are not your roofers and air conditioner repair people. And God bless those people. And my pesticide guy. God bless him. But they they have more you know degrees you know, and they have turned their back on Mr. Colbert and, and that line of thinking. And I hope we flush this line of thinking out and get back to supporting people who are working, risking their lives, risking their good attitudes, doing the, mm -hmm. the hard work from teachers mm -hmm. to nurses. You know, even to, you know, I know a public defender, a street level Jewish public defender, she's got knee pads on her elbows. You know, she's out here in Vegas from the Bronx. She's not from Brooklyn. She's from, remember we talked about the Bronx last time? She is a serious street level lawyer and she is walking back all this nonsense to get us back to a sense of, of real community at street level. Not the Stephen Cope, not the people living in, you know, brownstones in new york you know we love new york but i'm not sure we love people in brownstones in new york you know certainly not now no nah. but <laughs> do you... by the way i have to i have to shout out this great truck that i saw today this is kind of a theme i guess i was behind a plumber's truck and i can't remember for the life of me the name of the business 
but their slogan was great. It was, uh, we're number one in a number two business. Oh, that's a nice follow-up to your advertising performance. See, you're, you're, you're thinking about, you know, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep uh, just floating the idea of us being a creative team worldwide. I just, mm-hmm. I, I want to get back into that fray. Let me tell you something else on that line. You just, I love how you trigger good, I, I, I didn't have this in my notes. My former, uh, not my art director partner is dead. He, he, he died in 2006. I've said that he was 12 years old. But the guy that he trained, who's still someone I work with from time to time, was involved in this uh, project through Monash University in Australia. And this is like one of your creative challenges. So uh, I might revisit this later. But the mm-hmm. students had to come up with the name of a dangerous, utterly destructive, but very tempting drug that would go streetwide, worldwide. And do you know what, against the odds, the number of people, I think there was like a 1,500 people involved in this survey. Do you know that the, the choice was very, very clear? For a completely illegal, but tempting, totally destructive drug, you know. Do you know what it was? What the name was? What? Kardashian. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> Is now this doesn't that resonate with your idea about the common sense of the common people? Yeah. You know, all these people go, well, they, they just eat fried chicken and sit on the couch and like reality TV because that's what our, you know, white liberal friends who are so smart say about them. Well, actually, maybe they're not so stupid. Maybe they just have, you know, a not a very nice couch and they're working too hard and they're, you know, they just are a little bit too mm-hmm. tired to reach out for something bigger. Uh, maybe we should look after them a little bit better or at least think a little bit more respectfully of them. You know, those of us with college degrees, uh, you know, I, I, I really actually kind of admire uh, the pest inspector guy. I mean, he struggled out of an apartment complex I know in Las Vegas is one of the most dangerous places in the Southwest. And he's He's cool. He's got four kids and he's working about, you know, 75 hours a week. And I really don't have a lot of stones to throw at that guy. Uh, Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I love the idea of the the drug, the designer drug that is going to completely compromise your moral being is Kardashian. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um. Where would you like to go from here? I had a brief note about how uh, you, like, this is another weakened dissonance thing, how Ukrainians who have are refugees running from the current war uh, are running into issues because Ukraine is a notoriously under-slash-anti-vaxxed country. About 35% of adults are vaccinated there, and they are finding shelter in Germany, which just so happens to be one of the most ultra-strict vax passport nations in the European Union, maybe probably even the world. Um, 
So I thought that that was an interesting, again, this to me, and we can go, if you want to, we can go into my creative challenge from here because this does touch on it. This, this, what I'm calling a clash between communities and society, because I, I do see them as two different things, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to chime in on that maybe before I segued. Okay, well, um, okay, let me think about this for a moment. Uh, look, I think the, uh, can we just circle the whole notion of, of the refugee idea? Because I think mm -hmm. that is too big a topic to be left into this frame. I really do. I think yeah. we're talking about millions okay. of people. We're, we, you know, we're talking about one of the great themes of literature and and culture across all of the arts. You know, people in transit. You know, strangers and pilgrims. You know, it, it's a very very big idea, and it's a huge dichotomy, and and therefore a sense a source of dissonance between those who are at home and those who are fundamentally not at home. And it does tie into uh, a big idea that we raised uh, early in the series from my experience in the Solomon Islands of no fortress, no siege, to be always on the move. I think we need to do a special segment on the, on the concept of refugees, asylum, uh, what that implies, because there are so many assumptions in that that are just... I think it really needs its own episode. Uh, and we're, 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 we, we talked maybe about uh, doing, uh, it was kind of time to do our uh, rap music, hip hop showdown debate. You know, I think we're picking out some very big topics that maybe we could feature on a kind of a once a month sort of basis. I, I feel that's a little bit too big to take on with a short response here. Um, and instead, <laughs> I want to change gears and um, right. look at, because I think this is, it's not really changing gears. It's looking at two of the, because we've talked about progress, the illusory sort of nature of progress and ideas, how uh, communities, societies, and cultures seem to progress or, or not. Uh, the zero-sum game of progress, one step forward, two steps, you know, on and on and on. That, that, that notion is a very complicated notion, and it does feed into my, my tool uh, discussion uh, pretty nicely. But I, I happened to watch uh, the black exploitation movie Foxy Brown with the beautiful and voluptuous mm -hmm. Pam Greer. Uh, Quentin Tarantino admires her. I mean, it's hard not to sort of find her beautiful and compelling as a woman. Uh, but it, it's a classic sort of 70s uh, revenge, you know, vigilante uh, story. It, it, it's just, it's outrageous. And there are two things that, uh, th I mean, there's a lesbian bar fight in it, for God's sakes, and a castration scene castration revenge scene i was just stunned i mean it's like talk about being you know over over the top or you know out on the edge 
Mm-hmm. But I was tempted. I, I, I was so moved, but I, you know, I was taking photographs on my big screen. On well, it's not very. It's not a really big screen. It's like I, you know, it's just, it's a bigger than my laptop computer screen. I I don't watch TV really at all. I watch it via my computer. But I love the fashions, and I loved the lingo. The the I I recorded whole segments of the dialogue, which is stilted as you can imagine but i think it's pretty fair to the memories of of, of people my age of, of what people spoke like in the 1970s particularly this whole sort of black you know uh, crazy black power you know gangster sort of thing it was it was before hip-hop there was foxy brown and a level of lingo and it struck me that there are two sort of, and then also I, I used in an email the expression Boulder City, where I live now, is the bomb. And a guy who's not that much younger was really tickled by that and thought, oh, well, you know, I thought, well, you know, it's an expression. I, you know, I know it's sort of like not the latest thing, but it struck me that the way that social progress or being hip or being cool or being in the in crowd or being, you know, whatever, is defined by two things, being up with the latest technology and up with the latest lingo. And I had never seen that parallel so clearly. Lingo and technology are both expressions of the capitalist drive if you're not in with those well then you're getting older you're getting left behind you know and it's like Mm -hmm. oh okay and i think there's a dissonant there's that one of the core mechanisms of dissonance to maybe finish off our discussion of, of dissonance in the week that look seriously at like how language connects with technology According to my studies, like about 1.2 million words are acceptable in the English vocabulary as of now. And between 800 and 3,000 words are what people's common vocabulary is. Notice the difference. It's quite extreme. But out of all of the new words that have emerged, so many of them have to do with technology. The other words really that are emerging are through Urban Dictionary, which I encourage people to check out. Uh, do you check that out from time to time? I do. Yeah. Usually for acronyms. There are a lot of acronyms that go around and I don't know what they mean, so I, I check them out. I, I have a quick thought about this, and that is that slang necessarily shouldn't be used very much by people either your age or my age, um, especially new slang. Um, I'm going to revise what I just said. I think that it's fine to use slang that we used in our formative years, but slang in and of itself is, at its best, is designed to act as training wheels for younger people who don't yet have the vocabulary to express themselves, right? So I don't think that adopting, because I see a lot of new slang, and a lot of it I know what it means, but I refuse to use it right because i have i have my own i have my own words right i'm not a kid 
Like, I'm not a... And I think that outside of the sort of embarrassment of, of trying to, you know, maybe seem younger than you actually are, I think that it's just... It's, it's a frame of language that is not for us anymore because by now, I'm 35, by now I should be articulate enough and I should have read enough to be able to use uh you know the the words the words of english as defined by the dictionary from when i was you know a younger person to make my points rather than saying like you know for real for real or on god or whatever i'm not going to continue to debase myself (laughs) good for you good for you man i really applaud that i think you know i mean the idea slang itself is an interesting word i encourage people to uh you know, review where that comes from. Obviously, you know, slang and language, you can sort of get a, a feel for what's going on there. But the, the certainly the spirit of it is is not to, uh, to strain and to try to be part of a group, you know, to not try to fit in via language and code words and shibboleths and, you know, because you, you, you look like an idiot and you sound like an idiot if you do that. A lot of the 1950s, 60s major movies, Asphalt Jungle is a good example with Glenn Ford. Um, You know, there's this pathetic attempt by the faculty to try to, you know, pick up on the lingo of the teenagers. And then the Gidget movies and all this, you know, a lot of the movies of the 60s, a little bit later, picked up on this still further. It's just like, really? Why are you trying to speak like a 16-year-old? You know, you're 45, you're 50, you know? And it's just forget decoding, you know, no, get them to take orders from you. You know, that's the thing. And if you need an air pistol, uh, well, there you go. You know, you don't, you don't. Yeah, if you, yeah, exactly. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's your, your, your coolness should come from your laid back self-assurance and sense of authority that comes from having been alive, right? Young kids don't, they don't, they don't have that simply by virtue of not having been alive long enough you you just can't you can't learn the lessons that life has to teach you in the time that they've been alive really no matter how hard your life may have been but that is the essence of the cool older person right is being laid back being chill about stuff well uh, not trying to be a kid a wonderful wonderful example it, I mean, it's so awkward in the movie, but it's kind of well done in a script sense. But in, in the um, Lethal Weapons series, Danny Glover, uh, who's not an actor I, I really admire much, but I think he, he, he's a good sort of, you know, pair with, uh, you know, our, our good friend, uh, <laughs> the nut. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean... They're a good balance, but we have a suburban aging black cop coming to terms with the fact that his son uses the term word and what that means. And it becomes an ongoing sub theme of, of the movie. I think it's this, like the second, second one uh, before the whole thing lost the plot entirely. And Mel Gibson is, I, he, I don't think he knows what to say about it, but, uh, it's just such a tragic, you know, example of trying to keep pace 
with something that is going to go immediately out of fashion and isn't really worth uh, any importance at all. I mean, it's more important to go, well, you know, hey, son, are you are you actually going to school? I mean, who are you banging? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, mm -hmm. what what what's the future here? And by the way, uh, I want to see that toilet clean pretty quickly. You know, where's that kind of thing? You know, it's not like, well, I'm going to talk like my kids, you know. I mean, this is the whole thing that I see. This is, a, I think, a distinction between your age and mine. I have, I have seen, you know, Allen Ginsberg said, I've seen the best minds of my generation tortured by me. You know, I've seen the best minds of my generation capitulate to their children and take orders from mm. their kids and have, and have debates with, with two-year-olds, you know? It's like, right. really? <laughs> you know, really? You're going to have a debate with a, a two-year-old having a tantrum. Uh, uh, well, you know, okay. Uh, I haven't done enough drugs for that. I really haven't. I, I just, no. I, I would have been much more authoritarian on that level, and I support people who are. And I notice that the people who are out, and I, I, I see them, you know, I think it's really interesting, the families of color that really are holding it together. Uh, there's a strong male figure who is saying, no, don't do that shit, you know? And right. mothers who are saying, no, don't pick that up. You're not buying that, you know? They're, they're, they're not afraid to lay on some authority. So that may tie into your, your idea of community and society, uh, which I'm very eager to hear about. I do want to, like, suggest, though, a, a tool. Um, I'm not going to try to break into it now. This is a tool and not a tip. Um, but I, I do want people to maybe think about a little bit of, of research into the notion of sequence. Uh, we, we use that across a, a many ranges of things, but it is a mathematical idea, and our, our current stream of thinking about conceptual, intellectual, and magical tools is influenced by math. I'd like people to review the difference between an arithmetic versus a geometric sequence or progression that can run both ways. I don't want to have to summarize what the difference is because I think it's very deep, interestingly, in conceptual terms. But I would like to pick up in our next segment the distinction between a geometric progression or sequence and an exponential one uh, because I want to really look at that in larger conceptual terms to be faithful to the mathematical basis of it insofar as I can. I think I've, I've pretty much got that under control. But I'd like people to do a little bit of background work. Dave and I are going to continue to uh, increase the speed, you know, increase the magnitude of what we're trying to do. And we're speaking to smart people, so we're going to speak to you as if you are smart. And, and you can do a little bit of research. So next time I want to talk about a psychic protection and nutrition tool of sequence in terms of arithmetic and geometric and then exponential and to be a little bit familiar and fluent with some of those core differences at least in conceptual terms. So David I think we're now ready for uh, uh, your, uh, your breakdown of community versus society. Hit us. Okay so when you 
mentioned this to me, a few terms came to mind that I think are illustrative of the point that I'm going to try to make. Think about what comes to your mind when you hear the term community college. Now think about what that comes was to your a mind brilliant here. That was a brilliant starting point. I just want to uh, interject and interrupt, but sure, I want to point out to listeners that things don't always get better. It helps if they start off strong, okay? That's a good message for us all. Start off with a point of anchor and balance. Absolutely, absolutely. Now think about what you think of when you hear the word high society. What comes to mind when you hear community pool? How about social club? Now, think about the terms communism and socialism. They're very similar in many ways, but what I want you to think about is what a communist revolution looked like in, say, China, a largely proletariat mass of people with Mao's little red book. Or was it a green book? I think it might have been a green book. Anyway, now think about socialism. Who right now are the biggest purveyors of socialism. It's that class of people that <laughs> that Stephen Colbert kind of, you know, brandishing their ideas in front of the masses about how you should be happy to pay a certain amount for your gas because it really sticks it to Russia. And also, oh, by the way, socialism is good. Socialism to me seems like largely an upper middle class to upper class social idea that's baked into the society from the top down that largely acts as a release valve for their latent guilt about having as much money as they actually do. But to go back to the, <clears throat> the community college example, right? I think that the advantages and disadvantages of these two things, which I feel are largely class-based, the disadvantages for both of them is that they have a difficult time crossing over how would somebody from high society do in a community college? They'd probably feel like they were slumming it. They might not pay enough attention. They might feel like they are above the people at the community college. And conversely, how would somebody who graduated a community college do trying to enter into high society? How would somebody who's used to being at a social club really deal with being at a community pool? Societies are concerned with rules because they're conglomerations of disparate people that are put under a very rigid rule set that of course privileges the people at the top of that hierarchy and when you go to a community pool people are pissing in it and doing backflips all sorts of rules are being broken constantly because a community whether that is a community college or a community pool is made up of people who are thrown together not necessarily by rules directly but by circumstance and the circumstance of where they are forces them to bond with each other past superficial differences in order to in order to to play into the more rigid rules that are set by a society people who grow up in high society grow up with connections but not just connections, right? Because I've met some people who 
present themselves as a community college style student, but who have an innate ability to navigate social mores in a way that people who are used to communities don't. People who are from communities like to joke around. They tell off-color jokes. They, uh, they break rules, right? But people who are from societies know those rules. They know these social rules, and they're able to navigate things a little bit better. So I think that there is an issue there in that these terms, while they seem similar at first, they do have, to my mind, connotative differences that are undeniably class-based. I prefer communities. I prefer, you know, this new neighborhood that I'm moving into. Uh, my neighbor walked over to me, and he's got a pickup truck in his yard that on the, on the tailgate, it says, save the, save the homeless. He came over, and he looked like he has lived rough. But he's a very nice guy, and he does community outreach, right? You don't ever hear about society outreach. You hear about community outreach. And he works with the homeless. He gets them fed. He gets them sheltered. That's his life mission. And, you know, he told me, hey, you ever need anything? We're, we're a close community here, and we look out for each other, right? I'm not even sure that we live in a society, to be honest with you. I think we live in a community, and I think that those rules that privilege people who are more societally orientated they they don't they just don't cross over so that's that's the downfall of both of them right is that is that on both sides there's going to be this friction that might lead to people not being able to integrate correctly into one or the other but that is the end of my spiel well, I think that was one of your, I mean, your, your responses are always engaging, and I, I'm thrilled by this, and it encourages me. Uh, I, I derive a lot of inspiration from your responses, but I certainly derive a lot of support for uh, the methodology of, of assigning these imaginative challenges, because I think they, they get something out of you that, that otherwise might not have, we might not ever hear. Uh, That's correct. That is correct, yes. That, that is the deepest possible thing that I think David and I are trying to do with this, this sort of discussion, conversation, interview, exchange of ideas and, and thoughts and language. It, particularly at this moment in history and, and particularly this moment in American history is to remind ourselves that, that connection is, is, is so essential. Uh, you, you can have ideas on your own. I have notebooks full of them. Maybe you do too. But I think there is something about the engagement and the trigger. I never have a, I never have a single uh, segment of conversation with David more than two or three minutes of just introductory chit-chat where something doesn't emerge in my mind, uh, either with greater clarity or something that, that really is, is, is quite oblique and, and maybe even new. Uh, there were some beautiful things going on with, with his response, and I just, as a, from a teacher's sort of point of view, want to, to mention them. 
an instant grasp of balance. Remember the last segment we talked about the mathematically based notion of the equation and trying to break that free of people's mathematical frameworks of I don't use algebra and you know I wasn't good in math and, and, and thinking of it more in terms of balance. But there was a beautiful introductory balance of community college and high society. And that is a, a fantastic thinking way to get one's mental hands on this topic. But is there anything fancy or, or inaccessible about that? No. I think people understand those two terms. I think that's a beautiful example of the natural teachers we all can be if we do have a little bit of mental focus and a little bit of energy and a little bit of engagement with ideas in the world. Uh, that, was a, that was a really interesting, complicated balance. And David returns to it. This is another thing that good, strong minds can do. They don't just throw dice down on the table once. They come back to those numbers. They come back to, they use that magical releasing energy to, to drive them further. And I think that it, it helps that David's a writer. I think the writers do tend maybe a little bit more to this. But I've seen this across all people I define as intelligent, that an introductory, a gambit, you know, leads back around to something and you think, and it's a beautiful musical idea. It's the heart of musical motifs and themes. You know, you hear this, and you know, it's going to come back. And I love that idea. The other thing that I think is really interesting, and David has triggered a few, uh, a couple of thoughts that I think that we may need to really focus on very specifically. One was the whole refugee asylum thing that I spoke about earlier. But I think that, that one of the things I'm coming to understand is that the big distinction for me in terms of uh, conglomerate peoples is not uh, nationality, race, language, gender. Uh, those are all valid distinctions in a, in a Gilbert Ryle category sense. But I think class is the one that I come back to. And David, and, and we, we've never actually discussed this blatantly, openly, I don't think, David, but I think you and I have a very strong sense that class is the core issue. And it's it, it, interestingly, in American sociopolitics, I think it's the one issue that could never be talked about at all. It gets shunted away mm -hmm. by gender, mm -hmm. race, you know. It's just, no one wants to talk about class because no one has a very good definition of it. But I think that, that together you and I could flush that out. And I, I would think of kind of, um, I mean, one of the things I've, I've spoken about with David is that we might actually, you know, either via Zoom or, or maybe more physically, as, as COVID and, and, and times changed, if the gas prices weren't so much, that we would... Uh, do some road shows and, and do some workshops about things. But I think there are a lot of people who would benefit from a workshop on discussions of class. We have them about race and gender and being transgendered and all of this, you know, so many other aspects, but none about class. So I liked where David rounded that off to, but... <clears throat> There was a beautiful sense of balance working through that. And I, I encourage people to follow these exercises up because this was all done in real time. I, I 
absolutely tell you, David had no advance notice of this. He didn't. He wasn't typing away and, and preparing a script. But if you did read the transcript of this, and we're looking at, at making those available, uh, there's a beautiful rhetorical, poetic, and uh, epistemological sort of balance to that that I, I think is, is a performance in real time. And what we should all be aiming for with our minds and as some of us get older, uh, and as I tell my young students, you know, you got to get younger. Uh, we need to have that. We need to have that flexibility, that fluidity mm -hmm. of mind, you know. And, and you only get it when you play catch or you wrestle, you know. You need to wrestle a little bit with someone, you know. Wrestling with my... I, I had a fight every single day for six years with my stepbrother. A physical, serious fight, you know. And, and we were the best of friends, you know. Uh, we need to have that engagement. And I think that uh, in all aspects of our lives, I think with our partners and sex lives and our intellectual lives, got to have some physicality of wrestle. And, 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 and David put this you know, forward as an idea early, early in the series of the positivity of combat. And we're not talking about people going on rampages and emptying magazines into crowd. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the beauty of debate, about confrontation, sparring, and, and possibly, you know, some controlled physicality of fighting. But, you know, those are important because they keep you sharp. Got to keep you sharp. And um, I thought that was a beautiful response. Very interesting. There are a couple of things to follow up on, but I would like to... Um, we're building up a little bit of a nice reservoir of big topics that I would like to investigate. But I, I think we're due for uh, something significant about the notion of class. Because uh, you and I are both white males. We have an age difference. We have, you know, other differences. But I think we have some class connections and a perspective on class that is worth putting forward to people and maybe just raising some questions. I don't have any, you know, answers, or I don't have a, I don't have a barrow to push. But I just think that that is one of the most significant things that I've noticed in my life. I'm noticing it more and more. I think it's an underlying theme to tonight's episode. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad that that resonated. And you're absolutely right that these mental, imaginative, creative challenges are um, the origin and the impetus for um for some of these ideas i mean you know i have over the course of this show which has hit episode 80 so if we count our patron episodes this is actually the 101st episode that we've far had. out far yeah, out um yeah yeah i um i have started about a year and change later attempting to observe the world a bit more than I did when we started the show. I've been trying to think uh, on different tracks throughout my day. I've been writing down in my notebook things that I want to think about and let's do to put on the back burner of my mind, to, to use a phrase there. Um, so I, th I think that I don't talk to people at uh, Target I don't talk to my wife. I don't talk to my mother this way. This is an arena, right? Where I'm, I come here every Sunday 
engaged and ready to to spar to go back and forth with somebody you know right and i think that what you're saying is so important because i think everybody who's listening to this needs that as well we get on social media for me it's twitter for chris it might be facebook and there's a real sense of the loneliness of crowds on those websites right because by trying to talk to everybody you're really not talking to anybody and one of the best developments in the social technologies so that word again right the social technologies of of the year 2022 is the movement to smaller and smaller groups whether that's on discord signal telegram uh element there's a lot of these sort of encrypted apps where you can get group chats going and i think that having those organized groups uh whether they're social technology or dare i say it uh, in-person meetups over beers with your friends i think those are really important because the same way that if you never go to the gym you're not going to get buff you're not just going to get buff even though i'm moving right now i'm never going to get jacked moving my house right because because i'm picking up one heavy thing and then putting it down and then some time will go by and I'll pick up another heavy thing and put it down. There's not that repetition, but this is an hour and a half of, of training, right? And in the same way that your body takes time for you to be able to see muscular definition, it's taken a bit of time, I think, for my mind to see this kind of definition as well. But I think that it is starting to bleed into other aspects of my life where you know, I, where I will be talking to my wife or my mother or a friend or somebody on the street and actually be engaged with what they're saying and focused on what they're saying, not thinking about, what would I tweet about this, right? I can only speak from personal experience, but it's so important to move away from this technologically motivated way of thinking, which is really just, you know, attempting to get a little drop of dopamine in the deserts of our brain <laughs> to uh, to something a bit more robust a sauna instead right a sauna of thought but i'm ready if you're ready for a tip okay uh, well i i will me. just end that uh lovely uh sort of segue harmonic of yours and say um, in honor of the Solomon Islanders who have influenced me so much the question what would you do if the butterfly no one had ever seen was right behind you would you turn to look you know and I think it is worth thinking about just projecting in very simple practical down-to-earth terms the possibility of seeing and understanding the world and connecting with it in some new way. Magical, yes, but very, very physical. Getting down on your hands and knees and scrubbing. Well, what we find, you know? I found all these crazy stuff in this house, just getting really dirty and grubby and being really grumpy. But I found some cool things. But, okay, here's my tip, and this is based on my house-moving experience, but I think you'll understand this metaphorically. I was thinking of uh, replacing uh, this broken light on my back porch, which is kind of how you enter the house 
certainly with groceries. Uh, I, I the, the, the front porch is how I hope people would enter, but it's, it's how I enter driving the car in. So I back up to the, the short little stairs and, and load in groceries and, and various things. And the light has been broken. And I thought, well, do I want this? Do I want a sensor light? A sensor light, you know? And then I thought to myself about this. My neighbor on the other side has a sensor light. And it, I, I find it actually kind of annoying. It comes on oversensitively. I don't know if it's a rabbit or maybe one of the palm fronds that I've cut back, you know, we're triggering it. Or, I mean, what's it doing? And then I thought, well, what's the purpose of a sensor light? Okay, if I drive in and I, and I haven't been home and it's, I'm coming in after dark, well, I can leave the lights in my car on, can I, until I open the door and turn the back porch, the standard back porch light on. You know, I want to, I, I've got a back porch light I put in, but do I want a sensor light is my question. And I thought, well, why don't I just, you know, improvise or just make do. I'll leave the car lights on, hop up two little, three little steps, open the door and turn on the back porch and then load in whatever I have. And then I can leave the back porch light on if I want or turn it off. It's not coming on constantly. And then I thought about something else. Okay. Someone said, well, a sensor light's about security. I'm like, well, okay, yeah, but what if like at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning I'm asleep on the other side of the house? I, I don't know if the sensor light, you know, it might just be annoying uh, an insomniac neighbor on the other side or someone who's, you know, dealing with a little bit of an issue. But if someone wanted help climbing over the rocks and down the little hill, of my backyard, well, they'd want light. You know, they're either going to bring a light if they're going to rob me or, you know, do, and I don't think that's, that's very likely because, you know, I'll just shoot them. But uh, I, I really think that the idea of a sensor light is a stupid idea. It's an annoying idea. I find them almost more annoying than anything other than a car alarm. And my, my, my tip here is, I think we need to be very suspicious about anything automatic. I think that's as simple as that. I think we could go back to a turning point of the 1920s and the 1950s. Those were two major sort of uh, time period shifts when automation began to really percolate into, into culture, seriously, not just for the rich. And I think anything automatic... I mean, isn't that the basis uh, of what you should be questioning? Your, your girlfriend, wife, boyfriend, husband says something, you have an automatic response. Well, okay, then aren't you, what are you? Are you an animal, a human, or are you some sort of algorithm or machine? And I think we need to <clears throat> really be very, <clears throat> very, very uh, in interrogative of anything automatic anything that appears easy. There's a beautiful commercial that has, has uh, a TV commercial that has really meant a lot to me of like, I saw it about six months ago, little uh, African-American girl uh, talking about her mom washing the dishes before she puts them in the dishwasher. I mean, do we not all know what that is about? I think we do. I think we know about putting stain remover on fabric before we put it in the washing machine. I think we know all of this convenience get, you know, gimmick. 
I think, you know, William Burroughs would just say, look, this is the biggest, biggest setup of all time. Anything automatic, convenient, easy, but particularly the automatic part. I suggest that I'm much safer if the sensor light is there for my protection. I'm much safer just having the, all the lights out and having someone break their leg on the rocks coming in, you know, or trying, they'd make a, a ton of noise. You know, I wouldn't like want to break into my house in the dark. And if I brought my own light, I think someone, you know, that would be a little bit weird. It wouldn't be any weirder than this big sensor lot going on with every rabbit or morning dove or the stray coyote that wanders past. I mean, it's like, you know, like, no. So that's my tip. Think very, very strongly and critically about anything, anything physical, intellectual, conversational, or deep into your personal association patterns, anything automatic should be really, really questioned. That brings to mind staying in Seoul in South Korea for a month and renting a small apartment, Airbnb, that only had a washing machine but no dryer, which is common as far as I know in Korea based on the size of the apartments. They don't see a real reason to have a dryer. You hang your clothes either outside or on a drying rack inside. It's interesting because... You mean like the rugs out of my my back porch? (laughs) Well, the thing is, it really... it's It's a simple little change, but it really alters your understanding of of time and chores because it takes time for pants for jeans to dry on a rack it's not as simple as going to a dryer and setting it for 60 minutes and knowing that the jeans will be dry in an hour you have to be thinking ahead and that kind of thinking ahead is eliminated by automatic things you don't have to think it you can I can have the whim, on a whim I can say, hmm, I want to throw a load of laundry in, and I can know with some level of confidence that in about two hours, whatever was dirty will be clean and wearable. And that's just so different from, you know, having to do a wash and and actually accommodate that time it's going to take for them to dry. And I like what you said a lot about an automatic response to your spouse, loved one, whatever and i had this funny thought of you know uh my wife saying something like uh, what do you want to have for dinner tonight and me just saying you know take your pants off you know what i mean (laughs) (laughs) oh i love that you know well you know that's a beautiful performance in the world and remember that living is performative people it's it, it isn't by script it's 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 improvisational and in real time uh one of the things david that just is so encouraging to me it, i think it would have been encouraging when i was your age and, and younger any time in that life but it's so encouraging now uh you are unpredictable you know and I, I think in the best way, I think that you're very predictable in terms of ethics and morals and, and work ethic and, you know, a lot of ways, but not in terms of the, the, the vectors of your mind, you know, and mm-hmm. that is something that people need to get back to because, 
as they do age, and I, I am starting to talk to some people who, not just Ellen, you know, my mom, uh, who you enjoy, but, but, but some seriously older people, you know, people 15, 20 years, you know, older than I am. And that's what happens, you know, predictability sets in, they, they, they are fixed in certain programs and the programs have control. There is no, and they, they have taken control psychologically. So we're not fooling around with this idea of just being, well, it's, it's fun to be interesting and creative and, and just, you know, a little bit off outside the box. And no, no, it's much more serious than that. Much more serious than that. Because it, it, it who is driving your whole internal system? We don't have a coherent theory of mind that says who that is. We, we you know, Freud, Jung, many people have tried, uh, but we don't have one. And what we do know is that the more uh, unexamined and anti-critical thinking you are, uh, the more set you become in your ways and the more ossified you become uh, pretty much after the age of 45, you know? It doesn't take to... You don't have to be 90, <laughs> you know? Right, right. So am I, am I correct in thinking that we're moving the tool to the next episode? Yeah, the tool that is really about sequence, and I want people to remember, or just to do a little bit of research into arithmetic versus geometric progressions, and then the distinction between geometric and exponential progressions. And I want to have that just as a little bit of foundation, because I don't want to, I, I'm certainly not a mathematician. I, I, these are very basic sort of concepts, but very rich conceptually. But I, I do want to then uh, with a little bit of, of, of preview warning uh, to be able to go into some examples that uh, move us from the, the pure sort of uh, mathematical historical basis of them to a kind of conceptual frame that is more um, utilitarian across many uh, aspects of life. But Fantastic. now I have a dream. That is what I would like for you to take us out on. Give me the dream. Okay, well, you know, this is further evidence that uh, we can't take any responsibility from our, for our dreams. Last episode, I, I uh, put forward what, what, in my experience, was, was quite a lovely, raunchy, exciting, luxuriant, uh, very erotic little dream but also innocent in, in terms of its take out about the uh, the naturalness of sex and the naturalness of of human affection and lust well this is a real uh, writer's sort of dream and I was under enormous stress I was dealing with the rat in the walls issue and the palm fronds and the wind and you know the fact that I'm over budget and stressed out about money and it's like all these things and yet I, I, I drifted off fresh clean sheets and well, fresh clean linen that smells good is just, it's the balm of hurt minds, really. That's the true balm of hurt minds. And I went off into this beautiful spring blossom wander around some town, maybe Boulder City because it's kind of a classic town, but more just some sort of immortal, uh, perfect, wonderful community and there was a yard sale well i was a sucker for a yard sale and uh i was looking around 
and there was all this cool stuff. There was just funky stuff and stupid stuff. And like so much of the stuff I'd cleared out from my shed studio, you know. Uh, but I hit the uh, sawhorse tables laid out with paperback books. And there was Being There and The White Album and Slaughterhouse Five and all these like really dog-eared, sunburned, uh, water-stained fire cell paperbacks from my uh, past, but also America's, you know, past of, of really great literature. I mean, you know, uh, Joe Didion just died. Kurt Vonnegut's a pretty major sort of person, you know. Being there was, I think, you know, uh, Jersey Kaczynski for all the things that haunt his career legacy uh it was a great book and uh certainly um the the movie was very fun and as i was looking at these paperbacks going well what what don't i have here dude is there anything that i really sort of you know they were like you know 10 cents 20 cents i thought oh you know this is the nightmare for all writers right they they love libraries they love bookstores but yard sales trash and treasure oh no you don't want to be up there against you know uh, banana fritter recipes and, you know, yesterday's mm. Guinness Book of World Records from, you know, like 1965. And I looked around and it was the first moment that I noticed the people at the yard sale with me. You know, these huge blossoming trees and, I don't know, the smell of pineapple upside down cake and all these friendly neighborly people doing their thing. And I looked around and I thought... You know, damn me. Uh, I, I I think that looks like Joan Didion. And she just lit up a, you know, a cigarette. And there's Kurt Vonnegut. And he's smoking a palma. And there's Ken Kesey. And on and on it went. And then I, I must have been near to waking. Because I had this delightful sense of, of humorous, just joy. Here I was at a yard sale of famous dead authors who had been a great sort of counterculture influence, inspiration to me and have kind of fallen by the wayside. I don't think we have a counterculture anymore. I think that many people would claim we do, but I, I, I don't think it's... I think Stephen Colbert and certain kind of Whole Foods uh, liberalism uh, with a certain very tight agenda, which is non-intellectual, non non-imaginative has taken hold of everything but here I was actually in this beautiful back very humble you know working class garden with sawhorse tables and I was actually wandering around uh, my idea of heaven you know with some great authors dead authors looking at their dog-eared sunburned 10 cent reduced we'll take an offer paperbacks and I woke up feeling good. <laughs>